we can find the Lord Jesus in the New Testament and think about some of the lessons that we can learn from that. And the reason why I wanted to speak about this topic and to give some brief thoughts on it was because I want us to be able to read the Bible as a coherent book with a single message pointing to a single person. Uh, because before God ever created the world, God had in mind this plan of redemption by which he would reconcile everything to himself through Jesus Christ. So the Bible is fundamentally about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not plan B, he's not an afterthought, but he is the central person in the whole of the Bible. Um, so that then means that not only does the New Testament uh, tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ, but it means that the whole of the Old Testament is actually pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. But sometimes it doesn't seem that way. Sometimes we read the Old Testament and it's full of all kinds of strange laws and procedures and we think, how is this of any benefit to us? How do we even see Christ in all of this? Uh, and so the purpose of these meetings then is to try and think through how the Old Testament points to the Lord Jesus. But first of all, I want to demonstrate that this way of reading the Bible is actually a biblical way of reading the Bible, and it's the way that the Lord Jesus wants us to read the Bible as well. So we'll begin looking at Luke chapter 24 in a very famous passage, Luke chapter 24 and verse 15. Now when we turn to this passage, we discover that it's after the Lord Jesus Christ has died. And some of the disciples had seen the Lord Jesus Christ after the resurrection. But others, they were full of doubt and confusion. They really didn't know what was going on. And so there's two of these disciples. They're on their way. They're leaving Jerusalem. And they're heading to a little place called Emmaus. Feeling very dejected. And as they go along, the Lord Jesus comes alongside them and begins to talk to them. So we're going to read from Luke chapter 24 and from verse 15. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and by our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And this is the word of the Lord. It's verses 25 to 27 that I want to focus on here, because in these verses, the Lord Jesus he explains to them that what had happened in the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus 
It was entirely predicted by the Old Testament scriptures. And he then actually he chastises these disciples and he says that if they'd been reading their Bibles properly, they would have known all of this was going to take place. And so at that very point, he gives them a Bible lesson. And he starts to go through the whole Bible, beginning with the books of Moses in Genesis, goes through the prophets and explains in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. <laughs> now there's various other passages of scripture that I could have turned to where the Lord Jesus basically makes the same point, that, whole, that the whole Bible is about himself. This example serves to make the point, simply that the Lord Jesus understood the whole Bible as pointing to himself. He was the centre. And we read that the Lord Jesus then, he explains to these disciples exactly how it was that the Old Testament pointed to him. Now, it's important for us to grasp this point that the Old Testament points to the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is possible to read the Old Testament in such a way that we don't see Christ there. Because, you see, these disciples, they were good and faithful Jews. They'd read their Old Testament regularly. They'd studied it carefully, and yet they had not seen Christ clearly in the Old Testament until the Lord Jesus starts to explain to them how he's featured in the Old Testament. And indeed today, when you speak to many Jews and you ask them about how they see Jesus in the Old Testament, they'll look at you with astonishment and say, how on earth do you manage to find Jesus in the Old Testament? He's not there. It's just, it's just not true. Um, and this was the case in the first century as well. Even Paul, when he speaks about Jews of his day in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14, he says <coughs> that to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veal remains unlifted, the same kind of veal that, um, that Moses had that, that conceals the glory. And he says that this veal remains unlifted because only through Christ is the veal taken away. And he says to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veal remains over their hearts. They, they can't understand the Old Testament correctly. And he says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In other words, when you read the Old Testament as an unbeliever, you struggle to find Christ there. You struggle to find anything about the Lord Jesus. And Paul says that this is just because there's a veil hanging over your heart. You don't see it clearly. And it's only in Christ that that veil is taken away. That then is a very interesting point, because it means that the way in which Christ features in the Old Testament isn't always directly clear. It isn't always explicitly clear. It's not that it explicitly says, Jesus the Messiah will come and will die on the cross to redeem his people and will rise on the third day to, to uh, evidence God's approval of it. It doesn't say that kind of thing. It doesn't tell us explicitly about this coming one. Rather, it drops lots of hints and, and clues and suggestions about the one who would come that would fulfill all of God's promises to his people. In fact, if we want to use a biblical word that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 2, what we see in the Old Testament is shadows of the Messiah. Now, you, would, you know what it's like when you see a shadow. If you're in a room and you see a shadow going through the doorway and you look at that shadow... If you know who the person that the person is that owns the shadow, if you know who it is, then you can maybe make out from the, their gaze, from their shape, from their height, some, something about that person and say, ah, that's so-and-so because I recognise their shadow. But if you don't know that person, if you've never met that person yet, you don't gain very much from the shadow. 
And that's very similar to the way people read the Old Testament before the coming of Christ. They hadn't seen Christ, and so when they look at the shadows, it's all vague and indistinct, and it's very unclear for them. It's only when you know Christ then you can actually look at that shadow and say, aha, that's where we see the Lord Jesus. That's how he appears in the Old Testament. But for people who are reading the Old Testament that don't know Christ, then it's, it's actually a struggle you can see him there. So we see then that Christ, when he appears in the Old Testament, doesn't always ex appear explicitly, and it's not always immediately clear that it's referring to Christ, unless we know that it's Christ that we're looking for. And so then it means that as we read the Old Testament as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to look very carefully to find where he appears. Now sometimes that's easier than other times. Um, sometimes it's fairly straightforward. So we read a psalm like Psalm 22. And we read about it speaking about a man whose, whose hands and feet are pierced. About a man who's being mocked. A man who cries out in forsakenness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it, it's blatantly obvious to us then that that's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't take us too long to figure out. A psalm like that is plainly pointing to the Lord Jesus. But our task is made a little bit trickier when sometimes the New Testament writers see the Lord Jesus in places of the Old Testament that we don't expect him to be. He, he appears in places, and we think to ourselves, that's not at all uh, where I would see Christ in the Old Testament. Well, let me give you one example. Matthew chapter 2. You remember that story in Matthew chapter 2. Herod is trying to kill all the infants in around Bethlehem because he knows that the one who is the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem, and so he wants to kill the child Jesus. And so an angel appears to Joseph in the dream and tells tells Joseph to take his family and the child Jesus to Egypt. And so they spend some time in Egypt before they come back out of Egypt in order to protect the Lord Jesus from being killed by Herod. Then Matthew, he, he says in Matthew chapter 2 verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now at first glance you might think that's fairly straightforward. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament that says that God has called his son out of Egypt. But then you, you look at where Matthew's quoting from. Matthew's quoting from Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. And so you, you flip over to Hosea chapter 11 1 to see exactly what Hosea is talking about. And Hosea, he speaks the word of the Lord, and God says in Hosea 11 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And you think, hang on a second. That's not talking about the Lord Jesus, that's talking about Israel the nation. And God's saying that Israel the nation is his son, and he brought Israel out of Egypt in his great love for the nation. It's not prophecy in any sense of the word, it's just describing what took place in the past. So how on earth is Matthew saying that this is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now there's some people when you ask them what Matthew's doing and they'll say that Matthew's just playing fast and loose with scripture. It's just anywhere he sees anything that might fit his, his ideas and he just throws it in and hopes nobody notices that he's just talking waffle. Um, but 
If Matthew is seriously trying to convince people that Jesus really is the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, if Matthew really is trying to convince his fellow Jews and his readers that the Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus from Nazareth and that he is the answer to all of God's promises, then, then we've got to take what Matthew says seriously here. He's, he's not just trying to to fudge the issue, he's not just trying to fool us or trick us. Matthew's taking scripture very seriously when he says this. And one our job then is to ask ourselves the question, how is Matthew saying Christ here? How is he reading the Old Testament in such a way that sees the Lord Jesus here? And it's not just an issue with Matthew, that's just one example. There's lots of other examples in the New Testament where the writers, they see Christ in the Old Testament. It's unusual for us how they see him there and we've got to ask ourselves the question how are they reading the old testament hey in what way are they interpreting it now some people they suggest that that they've got all these kinds of uh, weird and wonderful ways of reading the bible uh, that are down to their the jewish ways of reading the bible for example but what you've got to remember is that the lord jesus himself on this road to emmaus at least on this occasion, he met with these disciples, and he was the one who explained to them how to read the Old Testament. So that the way that the New Testament writers and the way that the apostles read the Old Testament, it isn't just plucked out of thin air, it's the way that was taught to them by the Lord Jesus himself. And so what we're trying to uncover when we read the Bible is how did the Lord Jesus teach the way to read the Old Testament? And if we understand that, then we're going to be consistent with the way that the New Testament writers uh, think and read the Bible. So what I want to do then briefly over the course of this message is sketch out two ways in which they actually read the Old Testament. It's not an exhaustive summary, but two ways in which they read the Old Testament, which will then serve as keys over, uh, over um, subsequent messages uh, where we can look at specific books and see how that these keys help us to find Christ in the Old Testament. So the first way that the New Testament writers, they see Christ in the Old Testament is the most straightforward way. And that's where they see Christ as the fulfillment of God's promises made in the Old Testament. That is, God made very specific promises in the Old Testament. And those promises predicted a coming Messiah, a coming Saviour, and they're fulfilled in Christ. Now this idea of promise is so central in the Bible that some scholars have suggested that it is the central theme of scripture. One very helpful book is by a chap called Walter Kaiser, and he has argued in a book called The Promise Plan of God that the theme of promise is the central theme of scripture. In the Old Testament, you've got God's promises made, and in the New Testament, you've got God's promises kept and fulfilled. And the, the message of the New Testament is about how God is keeping, has kept, and will keep his promises that he has made. But whether or not we go the whole way and see it as the central theme of scripture, nevertheless, the theme of promise is a major theme in scripture. It is something which is the backbone of scripture. God makes, God makes promises in the Bible, which he then fulfills in the coming of Jesus Christ. And you see that from the very first book in the Bible. You go to Genesis, for example, and the key idea in Genesis is that God calls out one man, to start this process of redeeming the world from the effects of sin. And so he calls out this one man, Abraham. And Abraham is to be the one through whom 
all of the nations in the earth will be blessed and the effects of the fall will be undone. And so in Genesis chapter 17, God promises Abraham, Genesis 17, 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. And so there we've got a promise. God promises to Abraham that he's going to have kings as his descendants. And when we trace that through the, the message of Genesis, we discover that this promise, it doesn't apply to all of Abraham's sons, because Abraham had a son Ishmael and a son Isaac, but there's a specific son Isaac then that this promise is passed on to. And then from Isaac, it's passed on to Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons, and when Jacob was reaching the end of his life, towards the end of Genesis chapter 49, Jacob makes promises about what will happen in the future. And so he makes specific promises to the tribe of Judah. And he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so the promise is being gradually narrowed down from kings in general, from Abraham, down to the the tribe of Judah, and God promises then that from the tribe of Judah, there's going to come this kingly line. And specifically, this kingly line will result in one to whom will belong the obedience of the peoples. That expression, the peoples, in the Bible refers to, more often than not, the nations, all of the Gentiles, all of the peoples of the world. So this is a promise that there's going to come one from the tribe of Judah who is going to receive the obedience of all the nations of the world. And when people read this uh, in the Old Testament, they didn't know who was going to fit these shoes. They didn't know who was going to fulfill this promise. And that meant that they were constantly looking for one that was going to come along and fulfill this promise that was made. And again and again, there would come people along in their generation and they would say, is this the one that God has said to fulfill the promise? And what we discover is actually sometimes that God partially fulfills his promises in specific individuals, and yet holds back full fulfillment to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what happens when we come to King David, for example. Mm -hmm. King David, he's from the line of Abraham. He's from the tribe of Judah. And doubtless many people might have imagined when David came along, well, this is, this is the fulfillment of God's promises. This is the anointed. This is the Messiah, they would have thought. The anointed one. Uh, and it's, it's true to say actually that David did fulfill to some extent the promises that God made in Genesis. But not completely. He partially fulfilled them, but they still wait fuller fulfillment. Uh, and so we discover that God's promises can have initial stages of fulfillment and can occur multiple times with initial fulfillment up until the point when Jesus Christ fulfills them in their finality. And you see how then how God points beyond David himself to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when uh, the prophet Nathan, he comes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12, God gives promises to David. And he says, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Let me ask yourselves the question, what is this talking about? Is this promise given by God to David of a greeter that will follow David? And at one level, it's actually clearly not talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is talking about one who will build a house for God's name. In other words, build the temple for God. That was Solomon. Solomon was the one who built the temple. Uh, furthermore, it says in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, that when he commits sin or iniquity, then the Lord's going to discipline him. Uh, that certainly wasn't true of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the promise is in its initial fulfillment, definitely, about Solomon. Solomon is the one who built the temple, and when he sinned, he experienced the Lord's discipline. And yet, there's aspects of the promises that don't come true in Solomon's life. His throne doesn't last forever. His kingdom doesn't endure forever. It's only, a, it's only his son comes along, and the kingdom splinters, and then everything continues for a few generations, and it all just goes to pot, and they all get taken off into exile. And so there's aspects of the promise that still await fulfillment. And so what we're seeing is that there's initial fulfillment in Solomon, but there's a fulfillment, a complete fulfillment, awaited in a further one, a greater than Solomon, one who will actually be the true son of the Father, the one who will actually build God's house, the temple not made with hands, that is indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And he is the one who will sit on a throne that will never end. And so after Solomon died, the Israelites, they're left wondering, well, who's going to come along and fulfill the promise? And they keep on looking again and again. Is this the one that's going to fulfill the promise? And until it comes to points of absolute despair in the Old Testament, where people wonder, will, will God even fulfill this promise? Is this just pie in the sky, a kingdom that will last forever? And you turn to passages like Psalm 89 in, in the Old Testament, and the, the people of Israel, they sing this song of lament. It says, basically, look at what you've promised to David, and look at how what you've promised to David hasn't come true. You've promised him a kingdom that would last forever, and that hasn't taken place. Verse 38 of Psalm 89 the psalmist he laments, but now you have cast us off and rejected us. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant, and you've defiled his crown in the dust. No sign of a kingdom there, is there? And then the psalmist he asks in verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Where is it? Um, yeah, and he says, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you have sworn to David? And that was the question ringing in people's ears for hundreds of years until at last God fulfilled his promises. And so at the very outset of the New Testament, we come to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, and we see the fulfillment mm -hmm. that God makes of his promises. And we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This then is the one that fulfills the promises that God made to Abraham, the promises made to David. 
In Luke chapter 1 and verse 31, you remember that the angel, Gabriel, appears to Mary to tell Mary of the fulfillment of the promises. And the angel says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so we get to the point of the fulfilment of God's promises. The promises that people have been waiting for for so long are thus finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's the first way that we see Christ in the Old Testament. We see him as the fulfilment of direct promises that God made. Promises of a greater prophet. Promises of a greater priest. And promises, as we've just traced, of a greater king. Promises made to Abraham, made to David, made to Solomon, and many others, and then fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And these promises you see through the Old Testament, they've got multiple initial fulfillments. And then that tricks people. Uh, people see the promise made to David of one who would build his uh, build a house for God's name. And some people stop there with Solomon and say, well, Solomon fulfilled it. But he didn't, and that's the point of the New Testament. That even when God offers initial fulfillments, we still await an even greater fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now such a way of reading the Old Testament is really important for us because if we want to understand who the Lord Jesus really is and what he came to do, then we need to understand what promises he came to fulfill. And it's only in light of what the Old Testament foretold would take place that we actually understand what the Lord Jesus came to do. The Old Testament, you see, it gives us the context for understanding the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And without that context, it's really meaningless. So when you see the promises made to Abraham, that God is going to send kings through him, when you see the promises made that Judah, through the tribe of Judah, would come one to whom would be the obedience of all the peoples, then we see that God's purposes in the Old Testament is to undo the effect of Adam's fall, by which God's reign over this world was, dis was damaged and, and corrupted. And God's purpose then is to restore his, his rule over this world. It's the kingdom of God being brought by. And this is fundamentally the message of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes, preaching the message of the kingdom of God. God's reign over the world is being re-established through him as the king, as the one who is the mediator between God and man, as the one who will put all things right through his death and work on the cross. Through these promises in the Old Testament, we get to understand that he is the one who comes to establish God's temple here upon earth, the, the place in which God dwells with his people. And so we trace that message through the Old Testament, where God wanted to dwell with his people, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ then that, that God makes this come to pass. And in this present age, we see that in the church, the body of Christ, through God, where God dwells with us by his Spirit, thus fulfilling all the promises made in the Old Testament. And so again and again what we see is that reading the Old Testament enables us to understand better the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And it also builds our confidence in God's promises to us. God promised in the Old Testament 
that he would bring about one who would fulfill his promises, who would reconcile the world to himself, who would put all things right. Similarly, God has promised us eternal life. He's promised our resurrection. He's promised that the Lord Jesus Christ will return one day. And it, it seems like so many times that those promises aren't going to come to pass. It, it seems like that those promises are just a little bit ridiculous. And that's exactly the way that the people of Israel felt when they waited for a coming Messiah. It just all felt a little bit silly. When they were in exile, when there was no hope of them ever being a nation again, never mind having a king on the throne, it all just seemed a little bit silly. And yet God fulfilled his promises and that's what he's going to do for us. Mm. And that's why it's important then to see how Christ is predicted in the Old Testament, promised in the Old Testament, so that we would be sure of God's promise-keeping love. But if one way of seeing Christ in the Old Testament is to see him as the fulfilment of God's promises, the other way to see him is in the patterns of the past. Now this is a bit more unusual for us, especially if, if, we're, if we're reading the Bible with relatively new eyes. One of the ways that seems very strange to us is that God would not only provide verbal predictions of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that he would also provide patterns and pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now, foundational to understanding this is to know that God is the author of history. That's what we read in the Psalms. Psalm 115.3 says that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. In other words, God is the one who orchestrates everything that comes to pass. That's not to say that he's the cause of evil. He's definitely not. He doesn't stand behind everything in exactly the same way. But nevertheless, everything that unfolds in history is a result of his divine activity. He is the sovereign one. And because he's in control of history, then into history he paints pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. That gives us an understanding of what the Lord Jesus Christ will be like. Sometimes he paints those pictures in events. Sometimes he paints those pictures in, in acts of worship that the Old Testament saints were told to perform. Sometimes he paints those pictures in the lives of individuals in the Old Testament so that looking at those individuals we see a, a glimpse of what the Lord Jesus Christ is like. And the technical term that we use for these pictures is the word type. So maybe you've heard preachers talking about types in the Old Testament. This is what it refers to. It's referring to pictures in the Old Testament. And it's not a word that we use very often uh, because it's simply a transliteration of the Greek word typos. Uh, sometimes we use it in the word typeface. Um, basically, it just means an image. It means a pattern or a stamp. And that's the way it's used in Romans chapter 5. Remember, not so very long ago, we went through Romans chapter 5 and our Sunday morning studies through the book of Romans. And we read in chapter 5, verse 14, that death came from Adam to Moses, even for those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And there we saw that Adam was in actually some way similar to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, not similar in every respect, of course, because Adam certainly isn't somebody that we want to imitate. But in a very important way, Adam is actually like the Lord Jesus Christ and gives a clue, gives a picture of what Christ's work would be like. So just as Adam was the first person in the human race uh, in whom would exist all of his descendants who would be devastated by the effects of his sin, 
so also Jesus Christ would be the first in the new humanity, the new man created in Jesus Christ. And through him would not come uh, a torrent of destruction, but through him would come uh, torrents of grace, grace upon grace, mm -hmm. as John puts it. And so the, there's a huge contrast between Adam and Christ, but the parallel between them is the fact that both of them are the head of a humanity. And both of them release consequences upon those who are a part of them. And to that extent, then, Adam is supposed to tell us something important about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, when the first readers of the Old Testament, read, reading the Old Testament, they would not have picked up on that. Um, it, it's a bit like the shadows that we talked about. It, it's only when you know who the shadow belongs to that you actually know who it's talking about. In the same way, unless we know Jesus Christ, then we can read the Old Testament backwards, so to speak, and actually see where he appears in the Old Testament. But unless we know Jesus Christ, then that doesn't appear clear to us. But looking backwards, then we see how God designed things to point to the Lord Jesus. And then this starts to make sense of the Old Testament, and make sense of why the New Testament writers use the Old Testament. And so we come back to that tricky little passage in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15. Where Matthew is quoted from Isaiah chapter 11. And he has said that, that when the Lord Jesus Christ was brought out of Egypt, this was to fulfill the words of Hosea the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now of course if this is a straightforward prediction it doesn't make any sense at all. Because that's not what Isaiah is talking about. But if Israel is a pattern, is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ then what's happening in the Old Testament is that God is drawing pictures of the Lord Jesus in the events of his people. And it's when we look at those pictures that we actually see something about the Lord Jesus. <coughs> and so what, the, what Matthew is saying is that actually, here is the one who is like Israel, God's son, the one whom God loves, God's servant, but far, far greater. And you see that again and again when you trace it through the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. <coughs> you see how Matthew continually picks up on, on pictures in the Old Testament. So he's brought out of Egypt, just like Israel was brought out of Egypt. But you also remember that, that in Matthew's Gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ, he goes to John to be baptised in the water. And he goes through the waters of baptism and then is sent out into the wilderness. It reminds us very much of Israel in the, in the Old Testament. They were led through the Red Sea and brought into the wilderness. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, tested by God. And so the Lord Jesus, he enters into the wilderness and for 40 days he spends this time in the wilderness and he is tested there. They're tested in the issue of what they're going to eat. And Israel, they grumble and complain against God because God isn't giving them what they want. And the Lord Jesus, he's tested in this issue of food and actually he proves to be the faithful son who does what God has required from him. He trusts in God. Later then, the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he goes to the mountain and he gives instruction to his people. Much like Israel in the Old Testament were led through the wilderness and taken to Mount Sinai where the instruction was given to them. And, and then the Lord Jesus goes and he appoints 12 disciples, just as the 12 tribes of Israel 
were chosen by God to represent him. And so on and so forth. You can trace this right through the Gospels, how the, the Lord Jesus is actually mirroring things that happened to Israel in the Old Testament. And the whole point of this is that God is demonstrating that an even greater than Israel is here. That God's work in the Old Testament has come to a climactic fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can see it all being traced out in, in pencil form in the Old Testament. But it's not just people or, or groups that function as types in the Old Testament. Acts of worship function as types, uh, as images in the Old Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to go into this in a great deal of detail because over the past few weeks, Deduzi has very helpfully been tracing for us these feasts or festivals in the Old Testament and how they pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And to take the most recent example, last week Deduzi was talking about the Passover. And one of the things that I was talking to Deduzi about was um, that in the, the Passover rites, they are told in Exodus chapter 12 verse 46 about the Passover lamb you shall not break any of its bones mm. and that got me thinking about about what that means why does the Lord Jesus or why does God tell him in the Old Testament not to do that so what's the significance of that well when we come to John's description of the cross in John chapter 19 and verse 36 and John says that he didn't break the bones of the Lord Jesus, and he says that this took place. But these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now we ask ourselves, well, what Scripture is John referring to here? Now there is a Psalm, Psalm thirty-four twenty, where God says that He preserves the bones of the righteous. He keeps all his bones; not one of them is broken. So maybe John's referring to that. But when you start to connect the dots in John's Gospel, there's more to it than that. Because at the very outset of John's Gospel, you remember John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the idea that the Lord Jesus is the Lamb is something that's at the very outset of John's Gospel. So when we get to John chapter 19, I don't think John has dropped that thought. And, and so when he says that the scripture was fulfilled and not one of his bones would be broken, he's actually saying that this is a fulfillment of what was said of the Passover lamb. And he's drawing our attention to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ then is doing for us what the Passover lamb did for the Israelites. He's sheltering us under his blood so that wrath doesn't fall upon us. And so we see then that these types recur again and again in the Old, in the Old Testament. They're different from verbal promises. With verbal promises, God makes a promise. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to send a king. And then we look forward to that king that's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Uh, but with these types, these picture promises, God sketches something out in the Old Testament. And then when we get to the New Testament, we realise, hang on, actually God is replicating in the work of Jesus Christ something greater than that what we saw in the Old Testament. And again and again, this is to strengthen our faith, because when we see God's pattern of working in Scripture, God's pattern of working through history, then we realise that, that history isn't just a random set of occurrences, that God has got this grand plan of redemption that's woven together with pictures, with promises, and that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills all of these expectations, not just the verbal promises, but all of the types, all of the shadows are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And we realise then uh, that this is 
This is the one that all of Scripture points to. This is the hopes and dreams of all the years that are met in Jesus Christ. And this is a really important point, that, that what we see in the Old Testament strengthens our faith. Yeah. Um, because when we talk about seeing Christ in the Old Testament, we've got to be careful that we're not just talking about intellectual exercise. And we're not just talking about just finding him for the sake of finding him. Whenever I was younger, I used to enjoy the Where's Wally books. I'm <laughs> sure you've come across those. Fascinating pictures of people, little people doing all different kinds of things. And you would hunt through the picture to find a little picture of Wally with his striped shirt and stripy hat. That's not why we're looking for Christ in the Old Testament, just as a fun exercise to see where he is. The reason why we look for Christ in the Old Testament is to, to strengthen our faith, mm. to understand that God's promises really have come to pass. Mm. And more than that is to understand the Lord Jesus Christ, to get to know him better. Because in, in understanding what God promised, in understanding what God pictured, then we understand the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ mm. more fully. And that then, is the joy and the reason why we see Christ in the Old Testament. Mm. Now that's only been a very brief sketch, and a simple sketch, defining Christ in the Old Testament. And over the subsequent weeks, um, as the Lord allows, I intend to look at different sections of the Old Testament. I'll not exhaust it by any means, but dip into different sections of the Old Testament and see how they point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. But hopefully then, that has given you a bit of an outline, and I pray that the Lord would use this actually help us to find and to know Christ through the Old Testament. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Father, we thank you that the Bible is one consistent message that points forward to the Lord.